This yes. is hell. All right, then. Capitalism is the virus, and this is hell. This week on the show, it's This Is Hell, The Lost Pandemic Tapes, Volume 2, a hand-picked collection of interviews never aired before on our home station, Chicago Sound Experiment, WNUR 89.3 FM. The conversations you will hear are from the early months of COVID-19 back in 2020, three years ago, when we were all being told the best way to protect ourselves from the virus, which had suddenly become a pandemic and was killing untold numbers of people worldwide, to best protect ourselves from the virus, we should isolate and limit contact with the rest of humanity as we all awaited a vaccine, all of which kept us from having access to WNUR as Northwestern University, where WNUR is located, was on lockdown. So we never had the chance to share this week's featured discussions over the air on NUR. And as a sign of our appreciation for the support of all of you who have been listening over the air every Saturday morning, dating back as early as 1996, and who couldn't hear our show at the beginning of the pandemic, this week it's This Is Hell, The Lost Pandemic Tapes, Volume 2. We played Volume 1 back in late January and got a lot of positive response from listeners who were taken back to a time that is oddly already forgotten by so many of us, including me. Back in early May 2020, less than two months into social distancing and isolation guidelines being implemented by public health agencies, there was still a lot of talk about essential employees central workers, how little respect they had been given before the crisis, the inherent dangers in the workplace when they go to work during a crisis like a pandemic, their importance during such a crisis to supply us with what is needed to actually survive, and how underpaid they were for their essential work. There almost seemed to be an assumption that from now on, after the pandemic, we've learned our lesson, their work, the essential work, would be appreciated, they would live in safer, or they would work in safer working conditions, and they would be more rewarded. Of course, none of that happened, and in the end, what were essential workers would soon be vilified as greedy for daring to demand the bare minimum wages they deserve, which in many places still was not a living wage, for doing something pretty essential, and that is keeping the rest of us alive. I mentioned our, or I actually introduced our May 6th, 2020 interview, which we'll be playing in a few minutes. I introduced that interview this way. Through economic coercion, wages and conditions of work are controlled by the employer and used to compel workers to work. But increasingly within neoliberalism, we aren't simply being controlled by our working conditions and wages by how much we make and what we do, but by status coercion. That is, if you want to attain a livelihood. Through this status coercion, you are given rights and privileges that drive your desire to work more than pay or benefits. And this status coercion is playing out among a myriad of workers from prison laborers and graduate students, uh, welfare workers and college athletes. We'll find out what these workers have in common in today's work world when we speak in a few, or when you hear the interview that we'll be playing in a few, with sociologist Aaron Hato, author of Coerced, Work Under Threat of Punishment. Aaron is Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Buffalo. She is also author of the 2011 book, The Temp Economy, from Kelly Girls to Permatemps in Post-War America. 
She is editor of Prison Slash Work, Labor in the Carceral State, an interdisciplinary volume which examines the multiple and multidirectional intersections between mass incarceration and labor and employment in the U.S. today. Prison Slash Work is under contract with the University of California Press and is expected to be in print sometime in 2021. It was actually published the next year. You can follow Aaron on Twitter at E.E. Hatton. That's E-E-H-A-T-T-O-N. Find out more about Aaron at AaronHatton.com. Apparently I said her name was Aaron Hatto. It's Aaron Hatton. And I think I made that mistake during the week this week as well. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth radio show, live streaming and podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Will Ippen. Will how was your week-long vacation in beautiful Grand Rapids, Michigan? And uh, my apologies to all the people of GR for my sarcasm. Uh, it was lovely. Actually kicked off my Midwest tour with a trip to Des Moines, Iowa to visit my sister and parents. Uh, it's kind of an equidistant point for all us to get together. And I narrowly avoided pink eye from my nephew. So, oh, nice. So that was neat. Nice. Yeah, those science centers for kids, those science museums are... Never. It's a, uh, it's a hatchery for biological weaponry. He had his f- fingers all over the communal Legos in a very cool Lego installation. And all I could think about was, man... It's a really good thing we don't have to worry about polio anymore. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But you had to be worrying about COVID a little bit. Oh, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. With the Kraken out there now, the Kraken variant, which is really awesome. <laughs> I love how they call it the Kraken variant for whatever reason. So did you get to GR, though? Yeah, I got to GR. We we kind of uh, we got there Thursday, I think. Uh, almost met up with Sebastian, but because of the germ scare, we uh, decided not that to. until next time. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I got to spend some time with the in-laws, so a lot of good family time. Would you so you just hung out with family in GR? You didn't go out or go anywhere? Uh, yeah, we didn't go out anywhere. The closest we came to was getting takeout sushi with my grandmother-in-law. Uh, I was takeout sushi in Grand Rapids, <laughs> it's, Michigan. Uh, surprisingly good. Grand Rapids <laughs> punches above its weight. It does. It always it always does. It's kind of surprising. You don't think it's going to be as good as it is. Uh, so this weekend for the first time, this past weekend, for the first time since before the pandemic, friends of mine and I had our annual spring get-together, a yearly event that is centered around our friendship, but also because my friends and I are all to some varying degrees degenerates, it also focused on gambling. And I'll leave it at that because I don't want to endorse any kind of financial speculation where the house always wins. But since the last time we were together, me and my friends together, one person in the group died, another died and was brought back to life. I nearly died. Every one of us got COVID. One couldn't join us because the new Kraken variant was sweeping through their home, infecting himself and his entire family. And another almost didn't make it because the train he was taking here to Chicago hit a truck driven by someone who disregarded the train crossing signs. Both passengers in the vehicle survived and some on the train were injured. But not my friend who ended up making it after all, despite three or four hours of delays on the train tracks. And I learned that uh, you know you stayed up too late when you're celebrating 420 for the second time in a 12-hour period. That's when you know you've stayed up too late. All that said, keep in mind, this is how the Lost Pandemic Tapes Volume 2, like Volume 1, is not a look back at COVID-19 and the pandemic as if it is something that is over and now in our past. 
Instead, it's a reconsideration of how the world reacted in a time of crisis so he can learn from that response and be better prepared for the next crisis, with deforestation continuing, thus leading to more pandemics, and climate change happening far faster than anyone predicted. We're going to see a lot more crises, and soon. So it's probably a good idea to look back at how we reacted to the last one. The pandemic, as I witnessed its impact this past weekend, is still very much with us, and the new Kraken variant, I am told, is brutal. More important than any of that, Will, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what kind of shock and awe tactics do you employ to get what you want? What kind of shock and awe tactics do you employ to get what you want? This is all in relation to, we just completed a three-week series of interviews on Patreon that are from 20 years ago, over the last month. 20 years ago was the beginning of the war on Iraq. So we're having all these questions from hell that are related to the war on Iraq, because we don't want people to forget that it's been going on for 20 years, and for the people in Iraq, it really hasn't ended. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. Facebook.com slash This Is Hell Radio. You can tweet it to us, uh, or you can uh, at This Is Hell Radio, direct message us via Twitter, at This Is Hell Radio, or you can send email, send us email at Chuck at This Is Hell.com with your answer to this week's question from hell. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we will be announcing the winner of the question from hell. No Jeff Dorchin of the Moment of Truth this week. He's taking the week off. However, if your answer is our favorite, you will get your choice of whatever This Is Hell stuff you want. The t-shirt, the trucker, or winter caps, the coffee mug, the face covering, or the face mask. The This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from this, this century. As well as the tote bag. Yeah, we've got a tote bag. It's kind of embarrassing, but yes, we do have a tote bag. And you can find all that stuff at thisishell.com when clicking on support. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell, and Will has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is, according to a lawn care website, not a city in Colorado, despite reports from a local radio station. A lawn care website. I just want to stress this. Mm. This week's hangover cure is from a lawn care website. Continue. So... The headline for the article at the website for Grand Junction, Colorado's KOOL, that's cool for those spelling at home, um, 107.9 FM, Colorado's Greatest Hits. Man, that is a botched tagline with that call sign. It is, isn't it? Colorado's Coolest Hits. I know, when you think it makes no sense. Ah, man. Uh, Asked the question, is is, is this Colorado City really the best city for a hangover? Uh, story. The story reports, one Colorado city was just named the best place to cure a hangover in the state, as well as the 18th best city in the entire U.S. According to this new study from Lawn Love, a lawn care landscaping and related professional services website, <laughs> they might love their lawns a little too much. Yeah, a little bit too much. Um, <laughs> if you're looking to cure a hangover, you need a place with plenty of access to the following. Great hangover food. Sure. Great hangover drinks. Why not? Great hangover remedy options like IV bars. Okay. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> How thought, white is this town that I they No, I thought Colorado was into the oxygen bars. <laughs> yeah, right. Apparently, we're going into blood now. Yeah. Um, options to get home to sleep, places to sleep it off in public. We don't recommend that, but, you know. Whatever. If you need to. Yeah. 
After taking all the above into consideration, they named Denver, Colorado the 18th best city in the country for hangover cares. The only other Colorado city in the top 99 was Fort Collins at number 76. Which I hear is a nightmare of a town. It's full of good beer, though. Yeah, I've heard that. But yeah. Um, the worst city in America for a hangover cure is Montgomery, Alabama. I mean, just the worst city in America. You could just stop <laughs> at that point, can't you? Uh, the best, uh, San Francisco, Ugh. California, Ugh. if you can afford to cure a hangover there. Anyway. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Miami and New York City rounded out the top three. That makes this week's question, or hangover cure, um, in response to KOOLFM's question, is this Colorado city really the best city for a hangover? The answer is no. <laughs> San Francisco's the best. And for those of you in, here in Illinois, Chicago was ranked the fifth best city for a hangover cure. And the fifth worst was Juliet. <laughs> Again, you can just drop off the fifth there. Chuck, I don't know how to feel about this, but I've been hung over in each of those named cities. Oh, really? Uh, Fort Collins? Yes. Yes. Denver, Colorado? Yes. Chicago? Yes. Joliet? Yes. Montgomery, Alabama? Yes. Wait, really? Yes. Oh, wow. (laughs) And uh, Montgomery needs a little more love on that list. Oh, really? If, if, like, kind of heavy, greasy southern food is like a cornerstone of a cure, yeah. Punches above its weight and all that. Shout out to Brenda's Barbecue. All right, then. Well, thank you. We've demystified yet again the hangover cure. So This Is Hell is, again, looking for new producers. And who knows? Maybe our new producer is you. If you can make it to our studio at 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood and can work here from 9.30 a.m. to to 1 p.m., say 1 or maybe 2, two days a week, uh, Monday through Thursday each week, and believe in what we do here on the show, you too can be part of our crew. As a producer, you will help in deciding who to have on the show, confirm interviews with guests, contribute during the show, following shows, you will prepare episodes for podcasts, you will put it on our hard drive to save it uh, ad infinitum, and post the show at our site as well as on social media. You will also be rewarded for your services as we are doing our very best to provide producers with a living wage if you are interested email me at chuck at this is by becoming part of our staff you'll also get a number of additional perks including access to a professional studio for you to engage in your own projects which we will happily promote and endorse of course do you already do a podcast but want to do it somewhere other than your acoustically challenged basement bedroom or dining table then join us here on this is hell and get this with your support like i said We actually pay our producers. Go figure. If you are interested in joining This Is Hell, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. Tell us a little bit about yourself and why you like the show so much that you would actually want to contribute to the work of doing This Is Hell. Coming up on the show, it's part one of our three-part series this week, This Is Hell, The Lost Pandemic Tapes, Volume 2. And we'll begin with a deep dive into what it means to be an essential worker and what it doesn't. We'll tell you what happened on our most recent episode of This Is Hell on Patreon, exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. And former producer Sebastian Vupper, who has a PhD in history, will be giving us a peek of the past inside the present as he provides us with the historical context from the past to have a better understanding of our present. Will, what is Seb talking about this week? It is with great sadness that Seb <laughs> announces the death of the Soviet Union. <laughs> really? I guess so, because we're there already. already. In uh, 
uh, I'm sure Ronnie has everything to do with it. Sure. The Gipper. Um, in today's Past Inside the Present, we will conclude Soviet week by exploring how Ronald Reagan's evil empire stagnated and collapsed. <laughs> Knew he was going to get in there. Live from the United States, where the law is far too often the crime, this is hell. This is hell. There's a way in which many of our workplaces are controlled that is often overlooked, and by understanding these strategies, we can better understand our workplace and the economy in general. Here to tell us all about the power of status coercion, sociologist Aaron Hatton is author of Coerced Work Under Threat of Punishment. Welcome to This Is Hell, Aaron. Hi, Chuck. Thanks so much for having me here today. Erin is Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Buffalo. She is also author of the 2011 book, The Temp Economy, From Kelly Girls to Primatemps in Post-War America. You can follow Erin on Twitter at E.E. Hatton, that's H-A-T-T-O-N, and you can find out more about Erin at AaronHatton.com. You write about Apache, a 34-year-old black American man who recently finished his second stint in a New York State prison, like all able-bodied prisoners in New York State. Apache was required to work in prison. He worked six hours a day in the mess hall, preparing and serving food, washing dishes, scouring the kitchen, for which he was paid 15 to 17 cents an hour, nearly $13 every two two weeks. Then you quote Apache saying that earning these wages in prison, quote, you can can convince yourself you're in a good position as far as getting by. Because you're locked down, you don't have to pay your light bill and this and that and the other. But it's still slave labor at the end of the day. So Section 1 of the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution states neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. So slavery and forced labor is illegal in the United States, except when it is being used as a punishment for a crime. Is that unique in the world when it comes to like nations and say the G20? How unique is it for the United States to punish prisoners with forced slave labor conditions? Or is that very typical? It is generally unique. Um, There are not many places in which slavery is an explicit, I mean, sorry, not slavery, prison labor is an explicit exception to the abolition of slavery as it is in the U.S. So that that always brings up the old chestnut that we love to mention on this show every so often. Uh, One of our very favorite quotes, and that's the 19th century writer Fyodor Dostoevsky saying, the degree of civilization in a society can be judged by entering its prisons. What does this say to you about our degree of social and cultural development, our civilization in the U.S. when we allow forced labor and slavery in prisons as part of our justice system? Um, That's a great point. And uh, prison labor is a microcosm of the broader problems of prisons and mass incarceration in the U.S., which is, as Dostoevsky says, an indication of just how far we still have to go, how in so many ways uncivilized we are as a country. Um, Look, behind bars, prisoners, um, all able-bodied prisoners are generally required to work, um, though typically they are not given meaningful jobs to do, right? They are put to work. Um, Usually they help keep the prison running. They serve food, they clean bathrooms, um, they paint the walls, they wash the windows. Um, And for many prisoners, don't get me wrong, this can be a 
an okay way to pass the time because they are given so little else to do. They are given so few opportunities for gaining meaningful skills and for learning and education. Um, so it's not entirely bad, at least from the prisoner's perspectives. But as I talk about in my book, um, their bosses behind bars, the corrections officers who oversee their labor, have enormous power over them. So that if prisoners don't comply with any demand, no matter what that demand is, right? If that demand is to clean the floor with a toothbrush for some kind of um, uh, uh, sordid punishment, and if the prisoner does not comply, then they can be put in solitary confinement, put in an enclosed and segregated cell, unable to see friends, unable to see families, their family, um, for as long as the prison deems fit, right? There is no limit on the extent uh, uh, the amount of time which they can be put in solitary confinement for something as little as refusing to clean the floor with a toothbrush. Um, so corrections officers have a great deal of power over prisoners' lives behind bars, but also over their labor behind bars. So, but how much of that is coerced and how much of that is accepted? Because you quote Apache saying it's not supposed to be a camp. It's not so, supposed to be a happy place. We're in prison. We're not supposed to come in and kick our feet up. Apache seems to accept his slavery-enforced labor conditions as a justifiable punishment for crime. So why do even the prisoners view this kind of slavery as a justifiable punishment for crime when slavery in and of itself is an injustice? That's a great question. And the simple answer is it is both coerced and often accepted by prisoners and officers alike. Like, look, prisoners, like everyone else in American society, they are of American society and they have been enculturated with the views that infuse our culture, including that prisoners don't deserve, well, anything. They certainly don't deserve any of the right and respect that we impart to uh citizens, people outside of prison. Um, so Apache, like many of the former prisoners that I interviewed for this book, um, kind of accepted their second second class status um, as prisoners, right? They believed that this type of slave labor, and Apache said over and again, don't get me wrong, this is slave labor. Oh, believe you me, this is slave labor. But what do you expect? We're behind bars. So at once he kind of viewed it as improper, as slave labor, as the the forced labor um, to the point of punishment for prisoners, but also accepted it because that is what we as a culture believe is acceptable for prisoners. And so despite the low wages, despite any kind of corporate exploitation might be going on, the prisoners want to do this work. Would, would not working be worse for prisoners? Would them doing nothing, would that make them feel worse about their lot in life because they were not working and not therefore seeing themselves as productive citizens? Well, for prisoners, there are no simple answers, right? So if it's a stark contrast between doing something with your time and doing not being able to do absolutely anything, then yes, I would say that doing something is generally better. Um, in large part because the time passes so slowly and because as a culture we impart such importance and dignity to work, we find 
as a people, and myself included, we find great value and meaning in our labor. Um, and so being able to find that, and many prisoners do, is an important way of kind of taking part as a, a trying to do your part as a productive citizen behind bars in as much as one can. But look, those aren't the only options, right? Um, and by the way, it is nonetheless economically exploitative because if prisoners were not actually performing all of the labor that they do behind bars, um, then prisons would have to hire civilians and officers to do that work. Um, so states and private prisons and the federal prison system are saving enormous amounts of money um, by using prisoners to do this work. Um, so yes, it is exploitative and yes, it is coercive. And yes, sometimes, though not all of the times, prisoners also believe that they should have to do this or that it is worthwhile to do it. And although some bosses behind bars are great and and um, treat their prisoner workers, incarcerated workers with respect and dignity, many, many don't um, and wield harsh and severe punishments um, like they're handing out candy. Do Americans in general, outside of the prison uh, workplace and outside of the other workplaces that you talk about, do Americans define themselves by the work they do more than anything? Are we our work? And to you, what does that say to you about our culture, our society, the civilization we have built and are complicit in at this moment? Are we our work? Um, you know, generally we are. Um, we value work as a culture. We value it quite highly. And in many ways, we define our sense of value, our sense of self-work by the type of work that we do. And you can see this in all sorts of ways, but people really kind of carve the, out their identities in large part by their occupation. And you can even see this for people who don't have jobs. Like, no, I am uh, the CEO of the household, right? They, so they kind of import this um, corporate identity into the unwaged work, which is not insignificant, no, it's incredible amount of work, into the household, into the unpaid domestic sphere. Um, so yeah, we we place a ton of importance in work. We I carve out our identity, identities through work. Um, and this does kind of change the power dynamics when bosses have the power to kind of take away those identities from us and take away that dignity from us in the world of work. It's hard not to think about COVID-19 and all of the outbreak that's happening around us and the politics around it. Do you think that the protesters we are seeing at state capitals that they want economies to reopen because of this idea of defining themselves by being productive, defining them by their work? Or is this merely people need money? Well, it's, you know, it's really hard to extricate those things, right? This is an intense crisis, and it's a health crisis, and it's an economic crisis. Um, and you could also say that when people face unemployment, that provokes an identity crisis. Um, and so all of these things are kind of converging at once, and it's hard to um, kind of pull out the, the different pieces of this crisis. But it is true that um, people are terrified. Um, and people want to, to are trying to kind of 
get out of this downward spiral however they see fit in a way that aren't always probably the best way forward, at least from my perspective, right? I, I, I see the health crisis as driving this. And so we need to kind of address that first before we can really effectively um, stop the economic crisis. But there is something to the fact that when people are unemployed, when people have carved out their identities around their employment, um, it does precipitate this kind of identity crisis that they, they and because we have such a bootstrapping culture, right? We, we need that, we believe in personal responsibility and the need to pull yourself up with your own bootstraps. Um, having access to work, to meaningful work, is, is a centerpiece of that cultural belief system. You're right. Because they are prisoners, they can be required to work. But because they are prisoners, they're not protected as workers under labor and employment law. Like enslaved people in years past, American prisoners can be compelled to work while being denied the rights and protections of productive workers, while also condemned for not being such workers. As Apache said, they're at once slave labor and doing nothing. It is this cultural and legal intersection of working but not being recognized as workers that allows prisoners' labor and that of others, as we will see, to be characterized by coercion. Now, this reminded me of last year's wildfires in California and how prisoners were being compelled to help fight the fire alongside highly skilled firefighters as the state had far too few professionals to stop the conflagration. One story that came out was that the prisoners, who we knew were getting little pay and were protected by few rights, also could not use that experience after prison to apply those skills learned to a post-incarceration livelihood. That's what the LA Times was reporting at the time. How much can prisoners apply the skills they have learned to a post-prison job or even a career? And to what extent do prisoners become essential workers in times of disaster and crisis? That's a great question. So at least until now, for the most part, the work that incarcerated workers do behind bars does not translate easily to work post-incarceration. Um, they may, so in New York State, for instance, they may kind of get a series of certificates showing that they completed some kind of minimal training program or work experience um, in, I don't know, asbestos removal or something like that. But the fact of the matter is, given all of the barriers that are put in place um, for hiring people who have been incarcerated, that experience just does not translate. It does not mean um, that they're going to get work behind bars. And we see this again and again, certainly with firefighters who have direct experience on the line fighting these fires and have, were integral to keeping the California fires at bay, to stopping them. Yet they can't translate that into experience behind bars, despite the pervasive rhetoric otherwise, right? Again and again, we see prison systems saying, um, this is going to give them skills, this is going to give them something to do, keep them busy, and get them job after incarceration. And yet that's not what pans out. You also write that prisoners' contradictory position at the crossroads of compulsory labor, slave labor, and culturally constructed idleness doing nothing is not unique. Take, for example, workfare workers, welfare recipients who are required to work 25 to 35 hours a week in order to receive public assistance. They are assigned to jobs, often janitorial or bookkeeping in nature, in public parks, nonprofit organizations, government agencies, and in New York City, at least subway stations. But their labor is construed as work experience rather than work. As a result, Instead of wages, their work garners a relatively meager combination of cash benefits, rental and utility assistance, and food stamps, now SNAP, along with childcare during work hours. But those who are on workfare are not criminals. They're not 
convicted criminals. They're not prisoners. How does their workfare not violate the 13th Amendment? What does it say to you about workfare when those who are not incarcerated are treated similarly to prisons, prisoners who have been convicted of crimes? Well, the welfare system would say that they're not forced to work. Um, And, uh, you know, it depends how you define that word forced or coerced. Technically, that's true because, in fact, they can say, oh, okay, I don't want welfare. But is that a free choice? Of course not. Um, So for many people, in order to get these kind of key elements of the social safety net, cash benefits, uh, electricity vouchers, utility vouchers, SNAP benefits, and so on, they need to perform, quote, work activities. So this is a kind of a section of labor. It is, in fact, work, but it's carved out of employment law um, so that they don't, like, get minimum wage on unemployment because they call it work activities, because they say it's part of the welfare system, not the employment system. So you also point out that despite their labor, workfare workers like prisoners are seen as dependent on the state and are culturally disparaged as being a drain on the economy and a burden on taxpayers. Indeed, workfare workers themselves often take part in the disparagement, echoing the prisoner Apache's reprobation of prisoners. As workfare worker April Smith said of other welfare recipients, a lot of people laying around, they don't do anything. Is that what being rehabilitated in prison is today, accepting that you are a drain, a burden, who, if you're not a worker, you're not anything? Is that what is needed for society to accept convicted criminals back from incarceration, to accept themselves as a drain, a burden on society? Um, In some cases, certainly some prisoners accepted that, just as some workfare workers accepted that. Again, workfare workers, just like prisoners, are deeply of this American culture, which views welfare as bad, right? But we've only carved out certain programs as quote-unquote welfare, while other programs that help people, say, student loans, are not constructed as welfare, right? So those programs that we construct as welfare as bad, and we see those people as the people who use that system— um, as bad people, as immoral people. And by the way, they are also criminalized just as prisoners are because they're, in at least in contemporary America, they're presumed to be defrauding the system. So we look upon them as suspected criminals um, trying to unfairly take advantage of the system. Um, and so we think they need to be punished. We think they need to be surveilled. And we think they need to be put to work because the overriding assumption at, is that if We don't make them work, coerce them into working, um, picking up trash in the parks or cleaning the subway cars, then they don't really want to work. But that's, in fact, the opposite of the case. Just as for prisoners, all of the people that I interviewed sought meaningful employment, right? Again, they are of this culture, which believes deeply in the power and dignity and importance of work. They craved meaningful employment, but that is not what they found um, in their workfare assignments and behind bars. So is this kind of model uh, uh, that is applied to prison labor and workfare, is that creeping in any way into other ways in which the government doles out services? Is the future is our future, a future of working for our Medicaid and our social social security, uh, working uh, for services that we want to get from the government? Well, we, as a culture, certainly have organized a lot of policies around 
uh, work, a lot of social benefits, right? So we don't have um, kind of, uh, we don't have universal basic income, right? We, until recently, have not had health benefits that were readily available that were not attached to employment. Um, same with social security. So it is true that we have um, attached very strongly many kind of what some might call basic human entitlements um, to employment in various ways. And certainly welfare uh, benefits are a prime example of this. And in recent years with the Trump administration, they've been only talking about expand, uh, expanding that so that in order to even get Medicaid or SNAP benefits, people are going to be ex assigned to work fair, despite the fact that um, in point of fact, most people who receive those programs are already working. You mentioned universal basic income and even in the, the expansion that we're seeing right now with unemployment insurance. Can that replace, can that fill the void that people may have right now in feeling like they are not productive workers in this time of crisis? Is money a replacement, an adequate substitute for labor in keeping the public feeling productive? Um, no, I don't think so. Not in American culture. I mean, we really do find, place a ton of value and dignity in work apart from the money, right? So we we desperately need the money, of course. Um, but if we were just to get a UBI, which I am fully a proponent of, that would not replace the dignity and meaning and sense of self-worth that people also find in meaningful employment. You also point out that like incarcerated and workfare workers, College athletes and graduate students work but are not seen as workers. They cannot earn or earn much from their labor and their economic independence, their ability to sell their labor and expertise is restricted. They too are culturally and legally constructed as economic dependents, amateurs and trainees gaining education and experience. Is all our future a future as a worker who is not a worker? Will we lose all worker and labor rights because we will no longer be defined as workers? Well, it's a good question, and of course, one can never predict the future. But we have seen, I mean, this is of a piece of broader employment, employer strategies, which, as we have seen, have been finding ways to carve out workers from those laws that were put together to protect workers, right? So now many gig workers, for instance, are um, constructed as independent contractors rather than employees. And that means they're not eligible for a host of labor employment protections, including um, unpaid sick leave and family and medical leave and um, unemployment benefits and so on. Um, so when we carve people, all these different groups of people, and when you look at them in isolation, you might think, oh, well, that makes sense. They're prisoners. Oh, well, that makes sense. They're getting welfare. Oh, well, that makes sense. They're students, right? They're grad students or they're athletes. They're getting so much. But when we look at them all together, it seems less like kind of idiosyncratic examples and more like a broader strategy of exclusion, trying to carve out people from the basic employment protections that we have cobbled together to protect workers in America. Is this simply a capitalist government acting like capitalist business, seeking to accomplish their goal as cheaply with as low cost labor? as any business would when it comes to whether it's graduate students or college athletes or workfare participants or prisoners. Is this all just about them trying to cut corners, trying to cut costs, just like business does? Are they just reflecting the capitalist society outside of government? 
I think that that you could probably argue that that at heart this is you know the basic capitalist strategy of exploitation right of of extracting as much labor as possible at the lowest cost possible um, and so one strategy for accomplishing that ends is to carve out people from those labor and employment protections which impose costs on employers right so if we were to somehow imagine paying student athletes the value of their labor and time um, most universities would probably not be able to run football programs, right? Um, same with graduate students, same with prisoners. The, the economic structure would look very different and in fact impossible based on how they're currently structured, right? They could not economically do it. So I think you're right at heart, this is kind of a basic capitalist uh, strategy to extract labor at minimal cost. You identify key similarities between all of these groups, graduate students, college athletes, work, uh, workfare participants, and prisoners who labor within prison. You identify, identify key similarities between them, not just their status as non-workers, but how the status shapes the power dynamics that define their workplaces. How can workers not being seen as workers affect the power dynamics at a workplace? Yeah, that's a great question, and it's really kind of the centerpiece of what I examine in this book. Um, so, now, first, I just want to say as a caveat that I'm not suggesting in any way that, say, grad students are like prisoners or that student athletes are like prisoners, right? They're totally different groups of workers, and they have very different sets of vulnerabilities, and they've been marginalized in different ways and exploited in different ways. But I do argue that the type of power that their bosses can wield are similar, and in part is because they are not seen as workers under the eyes of law or culture. Um, so because they're not workers, they don't have access to basic employment protections. They don't get minimum wage, they don't get unemployment, they don't get sick leave and so on. But also um, the, their bosses, the corrections officers that oversee them or their coaches on the field or on the basketball courts, they're not, um, there's no like HR department kind of looking over their necks. And there's no HR department to whom the workers themselves can go if problems arise in the workplace. Um, and so this means that there's very kind of, there's very little regulation of coaches' power over athletes as a supervisor. There's very little regulation of corrections officers' power over prisoners as bosses, as labor bosses. Um, and so, um, one of the thing that arises from this is that it, when those bosses are abusive, when they're bad, bad apples, um, they can be really bad and there are no checks on their power. Um, but it also means that even when they're not bad apples, right, just as a matter of course, these bosses have a whole range of punishments they can wield over these workers, punishments which are entirely, entirely expected and accepted in these institutions. So like... If a grad student doesn't do basically what his boss, and they often call him his boss, his boss, his lab advisor says to do, then um, a whole range of consequences can ensue. Um, they can write him a bad letter of recommendation so that he won't get any future employment in that field. He might not be included in papers that come out of that lab, which can also ruin his career. He can be kicked out of the lab and therefore lose access to the subsidized education and this prestigious degree. Um, same with athletes, right? They can not play you, which means you lose your chance to play at this elite collegiate level. 
by the way, I looked at Division One uh, college football players and basketball players. So you, they can lose playing time. They can lose recruitment opportunities. Um, they can also, of course, lose their scholarships and lose access to education. Um, like I said before, prisoners can be put in solitary confinement. Workfare workers can lose total access to the social safety net, be kicked off welfare altogether. Um, so these bosses have enormous power over these workers' lives and families and futures. You write that economic coercion is aptly named because it operates primarily through pecuniary compulsion. The same is true of physical coercion, which operates through corporal compulsion. While the workers in this book experience some degree of economic coercion, and in the case of prisoners, physical coercion, the type of coercion that permeates their labor does not operate through their pecuniary or corporal mechanisms. Rather, it operates through status. Their supervisors have the power to discharge them from a particular status as prisoner, that's what you were just pointing out, welfare recipient, college athlete, or a graduate student in good standing, and thereby deprive them of the rights, privileges, and future opportunities that such status confers. Thus, I argue that these labor relations are characterized by status coercion. I want to make sure that people understand what status coercion is. So to what extent is status coercion class coercion? Yeah, that's a good question. So I would say it's different. Um, So each of these uh, groups of workers that I study uh, occupy a particular status, right? It's just like a, a social location in an organization. So it's like a student athlete. Um, they're not constructed as a worker, right? They are seen as student athletes, oftentimes prestigious elite athletes who are lucky to get to be where they are. They get oftentimes, not all the time, but they often get free education um, as well as a chance to play at an elite level, right? This is a prized status. And people from all class backgrounds can uh, at least ostensibly get this status, right? If they If they're good enough. Um, and so this status comes with all a, a whole set of rights and obligations, right? They have to go to practice every day for hours a day um, and privileges. They get all sorts of privileges, as we know. Um, but the, so the power that their coaches wield, their bosses wield over them is the ability to discharge them, remove them from that status, right? They no longer get to be an athlete anymore. They won't get to play. They'll lose their scholarship. They won't be recommended to professional recruiters, etc. So it's not about economic class per se, and it's more about being able to take advantage of the rights and status, the rights and privileges, and also even obligations that a particular status comes with. Now, the same is true of prisoners as well, right? Like being a prisoner is not a status that any of us wants to attain. But once you are living behind bars, um, maintaining one's status as a prisoner in good standing is incredibly important. It allows you to have visits from your family and use the phone to call your family, to call your children. It allows you to use the prison commissary to buy edible food and basic toiletries like deodorant and Tylenol. It allows you to go out and have recreation in the yard. It allows you to... um, just have socializing with friends and work and earn money behind bars, right? It allows for a host of things. So you maintaining one's uh, status as a prisoner in good standing is incredibly important. And also, by the way, it may allow you to be eligible for parole, for getting out of prison early because good behavior, right? P- parole is predicated on good behavior. But behind bars, uh, officers can 
take away that status, can say, if you don't do what they say, if you don't pick up the poop off the ground with a tissue paper or without any equipment at all, if you don't clean the urinals properly or whatever, with your bare hands, if you don't clean the floor with a toothbrush, whatever it is, if you don't comply, um, you can lose your status as a good prisoner and lose all of those privileges, those kind of basic human entitlements that become privileges behind bars. You mentioned how the government has put in a lot of protections when it comes to economic coercion, but it hasn't done the same thing with status coercion. It just made me wonder, Aaron, are workers today paid with privileges, not wages, privileges which bosses have far more control over than they do wages because there are the protections for economic coercion that the government has put in place, but they haven't put in any place in status coercion. So this is a place where they can leverage their power and control. I think that is certainly true to some extent. I mean, look, economic coercion is still very much alive and well, and it gives employers enormous power over workers, right? The ability to fire workers, the ability to promote or demote workers, the ability to put them on the schedule or to not schedule them at all. All of this is, you know, kind of the mechanisms of economic coercion, and it gives bosses a great deal of power. Now, as I, as you mentioned, I do write in the book that we have put a series of protections in place to mitigate to kind of lessen employers' powers of economic coercion so that if you are let go from your job, you can get unemployment insurance, right? Um, so, But those protections are pretty weak, to be honest. Um, and yet we have worked to mitigate that power. So, so it is important to note that that power at least has been kind of recognized and sought to be mitigated at least to a certain extent. But that is not the case, as you noted, about status coercion, right? We, we don't even have yet to recognize this as a form of employer power. And so in no way is it mitigated. It, uh, interesting example in the regular labor force is the use of um, non-compete clauses. Uh, among workers. So now more than ever, workers are being asked to sign non-compete clauses when they, at point of hire, oftentimes they don't even know that they're signing them. But what these clauses do is that if they leave their job, they are not allowed to find other employment in that field. This means that employers now have control not only of that particular job that they're doing, but also the worker's ability to leverage their labor market skills and experience to find new employment in that field. This is a form of status coercion in addition to economic coercion, and that is not at all mitigated in America today. Does the state give cover for status coercion by protecting economic coercion through the law? Does the state allow the market to apply status coercion while pointing to their efforts and reining in economic coercion? Um, I, I think to a certain degree, yes. I mean, it is true that in all of these ways, in all the ways that status coercion is being implemented, and, you know, I only name a few in my book. I think there's many more, much more to be found out about this form of labor coercion. Um, but it is true that it is largely just endorsed, right? It is largely just accepted as a form of employer and ultimately state power over workers um, and is really not mitigated in any way by policies. Is status coercion then a kind of U.S. caste system, or am I going too far? Um, let's see. That's a good question. I don't know. I, my first instinct is to say that you're going too far, but it is certainly true that status coercion can be an incredibly important and powerful source of employer power. 
um, although it's leveraged against different workers in different ways. And it's used to combine with economic coercion against workers in different ways. But when they're combined, um, especially for people who are involved in the criminal justice system, Here's another example. So in um, for people who are on probation or parole, they often are required to find employment under threat of being incarcerated. Um, so they have to keep a job in order to pay their child support payments or uh, inc- criminal justice debt. Um, but this gives their whatever their bosses are, their day labor or construction jobs, incredible power over them because if they don't keep that job, they're going to prison. Um, So this is where we see kind of criminal justice punishments and economic coercion and and status coercion combine to impose incredible power over these already quite vulnerable and disadvantaged workers. So what uh, impact do you think that that has had on labor organizing for these workers and labor organizing in general? Because once you see labor organizing undermined in one sector, it often can bleed over into another. It's absolutely the case that these kind of sticks of employer power can dampen worker organizing, right? Because it just makes the workers more vulnerable, even more vulnerable to all the different sticks that employers can wield. Um, And of course, you know, behind bars, for example, uh, prisoners don't even have a right to organize at all. But certainly when they do, when they act collectively, and sometimes they do, um, then uh, prisons and officers can wield these sticks of status coercion um, to great effect. They put, they beat them up. They put them in solitary confinement. Any uh, workers who came together to organize are going to separate them in prisons across the state and so on. Um, so these levers of status coercion, of this punitive power that I talk about in this book, are are wielded to great effect to weaken employer, uh, sorry, worker power and worker organizing. So uh, you also uh, you also write about how our lives are becoming uh, more you know everybody knows about this how but they're becoming more precarious more insecure mon- more uncertain but you point that status coercion is far more important in considering the workplace as we see it today so what do we miss when we don't recognize the status coercion and we only focus on the abundance of literature on precarity and austerity I think we're just missing a really important part of the story. It's not necessarily that this type of punitive power is more important than precarity. I mean, because in point of fact, economic insecurity is pervasive and an incredibly important and powerful and detrimental part of so many people's lives, right? I don't want to take away the importance of that. My point here is that it's just not the only story. It's not the only thing that's going on. And in fact, status coercion can combine with economic coercion to increase workers' precarity, to increase workers' vulnerability in this economic landscape. Um, So we're only getting part of the story, rather the whole story about workers' vulnerability in this time. How, How does status coercion create precarity? Because people might think of it as the other way around. How does one create the other? Well, they can certainly combine in different ways. And and there's no, it's kind of like a chicken and egg here. They, it's hard to tell which comes first, but they certainly combine in different ways and in different spaces for different populations. Um, but some examples are, for instance, um, for the prisoners that I interviewed who coming out of prison, they said, how could I not take 
any job out here, any crappy job, uh, when I worked for 10 cents an hour behind bars, right? So in effect, prison labor, crappy prison labor, prison labor that where their bosses had so much power over them, if they took one misstep, they'd be thrown in solitary confinement for an indefinite amount of time. They were primed and willing to accept any kind of crappy employment outside of bars. And in fact, they're often required to accept and keep such employment as a condition of their parole. The same is true for workfare workers. They too were readily primed to accept any type of crappy job um, uh, because they had experienced such degrading work as part of workfare, where they are openly degraded as being lazy and worthless on the job. Um, even we can see a similar example for graduate students, right? We think of um, PhDs as a really elite group, and in so many ways they are. Um, yet in the sciences, which is the students I studied, um, after you get a PhD and you want to stay in academic work, um, they now essentially have to take on postdocs. Postdocs, which are comparatively low wage, at least for their um, skill set, they may, let's say they make $30,000 a year, which is not nothing, but which is not PhD level wages. Um, and those postdocs are not lasting one or two years. They're lasting six, seven, 10, 12 years. They are primed to accept this substandard low wage work, which again, they are at the mercy of their lab bosses for an indefinite amount of time before they can leverage their skills to get the status work that they thought they were getting by getting a PhD. You write the state has expanded its punitive power in the context of neoliberalism for, as scholars have noted, neoliberalism in the United States has entailed not only state contraction, but also state expansion, a strategic shrinking of government combined with a surge of authoritarianism. The recent spread of labor precarity is associated with the former state withdrawal from some categories of work through DNRE regulation, declining labor standards, and deunionization. What does that tell you about neoliberalism when it shifts resources from the state to authoritarian to authoritarianism? What role does authoritarianism play in neoliberalism? Um, as as many scholars before me have pointed out, though it's not the common story of neoliberalism, but as scholars have pointed out, it's central component of this social economic trend, right? It's not just that a story of state contraction. It's not just taking away resources from people, say, through welfare retrenchment. That has happened. And at the same time, it has also happened that those state resources have been put into prisons, the criminal justice system, um, surveilling and punishing people on the streets through stop and frisk and so on, um, and prosecuting them. So it is a, a, this combined story of at once taking away in from welfare and benefits, and on the other hand, at the same time, um, moving forward with a surge of uh, authoritarian punishment and surveillance. This has been a fascinating conversation, and this is a fantastic book, Aaron. We've been speaking with sociologist Aaron Hatton, author of Coerced Work Under Threat of Punishment. 
Aaron is editor of Prison Work, Labor in the Carceral State, an interdisciplinary volume which examines the multiple and multidirectional intersections between mass incarceration and labor and employment in the U.S. today. Prison Work is under contract with the University of California Press and is expected to be in print sometime next year. She's also author of the 2011 book, The Temp Economy from Kelly Girls. My mom was a Kelly girl. Two permatemps yeah. in post-war America. You can follow Aaron on Twitter at E.E. Hatton, and you can find out more about Aaron at Aaron Hatton. Com. One last question for you, and as we do with all of our guests, Aaron, our final question is the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You analyze the role that ideologies of immorality and privilege play in constructing, justifying, and sustaining status coercion and the labor regimes predicated on it. What role does status coercion play within what we see as white privilege and white supremacy here in the United States, and how dependent is the U.S. economy or even our and society in general on that kind of status coercion? Um, I think it is an important part of our current economy. It's certainly not the only element, but it is a key piece that has not been identified yet until uh, my book. Um, and I do think that whiteness and race play a really important role in constructing this form of coercion and how it plays out for workers on the ground. So for those institutions that are racialized as black, such as prisons and the welfare system, then the punishment that punishments that bosses can wield in those institutions are incredibly severe. Um, and it incredibly detrimental to the workers' lives and to their families' lives in long-term ways. Now, for those workers who labor in institutions that are racialized as white, such as graduate students, they still face status coercion, to be sure, but that kind of white-based privilege also changes the type of punishments that their bosses can we can wield. Certainly, they can't put them in solitary confinement as they can behind bars, and they can't kick them on, off welfare as they can in the welfare system. So race plays a very important role in how this type of employer power plays out on the ground for workers. Aaron, I cannot thank you enough for being on our show. This is a fascinating book, and all of our listeners should check this out because, as you were saying, this is the first time that I've ever seen this discussed, this status coercion, and it's really important in understanding our workplace dynamic as it exists, especially under neoliberalism today. Thank you so much for being on our show this week, Aaron. Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Sociologist Aaron Hatton, author of Coerced, Work Under Threat of Punishment. Find out more about Aaron at our website, AaronHatton.com. That's H-A-T-T-O-N. Wait, let me spell that whole thing out for you because it's E-R-I-N, Aaron, H-A-T-T-O-N.com. This is, well, we're going to hear a voice here. Oh, I thought we were going to hear a voice there. I was going to, that was stepping on somebody's read. It's oh. all good. Oh, I, I cut it to make room for you. Uh, <laughs> this is not the media. This is hell. Again, you can probably tell from that conversation with Aaron Hatton. Hatton. I don't know why I was saying Hatto. I guess the N was dropped out of my script somehow. You can probably tell we are not the media, as what you just heard was definitely not what the establishment corporate, both private and public media here in the States, was reporting only a few short m months into the COVID-19 pandemic. This was not anything like what was being reported on any of the more establishment media. Uh, this was months before a vaccine had been developed, while the virus was easily transmittable at its most virulent and deadly, with healthcare workers and services and family and community members caring for each other. They were all thoroughly overwhelmed at the time. And because we are not media, 
not the media. We do not take any advertiser money. We do, do not apply for or receive any grants from foundations. We do not have the resources to become a not-for-profit or any form of corporation or company, all of which means we depend on the kindness of, well, you, the listening audience, as we are completely listener-supported, so we limit whatever bias or conflict of interest we may have, or even a perception of a conflict of interest. Everyone has a bias, and at least ours are not driven by profit-seeking for ourselves or our bosses, because with your gracious support, we do not have a boss other than, well, you. Find out more by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support or become a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash thisishell, where we offer our subscribers an additional episode of This Is Hell every week. Recently, during our Patreon podcast on Thursday, March 30th, I could not stop thinking about last week's question from hell. It was kind of one of those, what is the sound of one hand clapping questions. We asked listeners what it is that they are repressing, but it's unanswerable, as repressing something means you are unconsciously in denial, which makes whatever is being repressed unknowable. So I figured recognizing the unknowable sounded like a good subject for a monologue, but it ended up being more about suppression rather than repression, and I revealed what it is that I suppress, consciously deny, when doing each and every episode of This Is Hell, and you may be surprised by what I purposely uh, suppress on air. Maybe not, but probably, especially when it comes to being on air and being regulated by the FCC. We also wrapped up our final episode in our three-week series commemorating the 20th anniversary of the war on Iraq. During the third and final episode, we shared our interview from February 22nd, 2003, when we were joined by Ahmad Kaduri, who worked with the Iraqi Atomic Energy Commission for 30 years until 1998, when he was able to leave Iraq with his family. Ahmad, who had first-hand knowledge of Iraq's nuclear program, had also just written a four-part series on the weapons inspections that failed to find any weapons of mass destruction. Earlier that year, Ahmad's book, Iraq's Nuclear Mirage, Memoirs and Delusions, was published. In it, Ahmad discusses what he calls the, quote, peaceful beginnings of the Iraqi nuclear program aided by the United States and its gradual and then sudden turn into a weapons program and its final demise and disintegration. But you can only hear all of that by becoming a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. If you do, you get immediate access to more than five years of Patreon podcasts as well as a special code word that gives you a $5 discount on all our stuff at thisishell.com when you click on support. And we have a new perk that we just announced for Patreon patrons. You can now suggest a question from hell for me at patreon.com slash thisishell. And every week following our classic interview, whoever is producing that week, that day's show, will choose one of your suggestions and ask me your question from hell. And I promise I will never look at your suggestions posted online. They'll be for producers' eyes only, and the producer will choose that question from hell for that week for me on their own. They're not going to tip me off in any way. So the very first time I hear the question from hell for me, after we play that week's interview from our archives on Patreon, I will immediately answer to the best of my ability at that very moment. That's the question from hell for your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz, now on Patreon. Every week, 
during our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Will, please remind us what is this week's question from hell, and please tell us how our listeners on Patreon and Discord are responding so far. This week's question from hell is, what kind of shock and awe tactics do you employ to get what you want? Uh, On Patreon, Edson C. says, Most people seem to react with shock and awe when I say that capitalism is the reason for just about any problem we are facing. (laughs) And that ends the discussion, which is usually what I want with most people. (laughs) So his his shock and awe uh, strategy is just mentioning capitalism and it just kills the conversation. (laughs) Man, I can relate to that. Yeah, that will kill a conversation. I did that for about a week with various family members. Did you? Um, Well, you know, it comes up. And then you just kind of ends the conversation? Uh, yeah, we, yeah. <laughs> we move on. They expect it from me. So. <laughs> there you go. Um, any, any more? Uh, not on Patreon. Uh, we have crickets on Discord right now. Step up your game, Discord. Yeah, what's going on over there? Any more you want to share? Oh, uh, we Twitter? got Facebook. Uh, nothing on Twitter yet. All right, let's uh, do a couple Kim G says, cream pies and capuchin monkey. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's a shocking hot tactic. <laughs> yeah, I have so many questions. Kim. I got many questions, and I don't think any should be answered during no. the family programming hour. We'll definitely have to make some radio edit cuts for <laughs> Exactly. That. Any more? Uh, Tom W. says, mutual aid. <laughs> and Nick A says the best kind. <laughs> wow. wow! I don't know what that's going on there. All right, our listeners, there's a vibe there. Uh, I can't put my finger on. That, thank God. And I think if you did, you'd have your own website. Yeah. <laughs> the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us. You can email it to me at chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we will be announcing the winner following our final interview of the Lost Pandemic Tapes, Volume 2. We'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell later this week. But right now, it's time for our weekly segment, The Past Inside the Present, with Dr. Sebastian Voper, who has a PhD in history and gives us the historical context from the past that we need to have a better understanding of the present. Take it away, Sebastian. The Past Inside the Present. Welcome back to Soviet History Weeks on This Is Hell, where I go over the long and often misunderstood or rather misrepresented history of the Soviet Union while trying to neither condemn nor glorify the now long-dead worker and peasant state. Last week, we talked about the beginning of the Cold War, the death of Stalin and his successor, Nikita Khrushchev, who did away with most of the outright dictatorship stuff while still presenting a formidable opponent to the United States. Khrushchev, uh, as we went over last week, fell from grace for the rest of the Soviet leadership after the Cuban Missile Crisis, which, as we are hopefully all aware of, did not end in destroying the world in nuclear fire. But Khrushchev's backing down from the standoff was read as a weakness, and so he saw himself forced to withdraw from all leadership positions. But the missile crisis had only been the last in a series of issues that Soviet leadership had with um, their first secretary. Two days after Khrushchev had left office, the newspaper Pravda, uh, the official organ of the Communist Party, published a front-page article that went into the details of the change in leadership. 
The Communist Party would continue to work towards a peaceful coexistence between nations governed by different political systems, the newspaper wrote. The prime directive of the party in foreign policy was still to prevent nuclear war. The leadership distanced itself from uh, visionary fantasies, from grandiose promises from above, and from rash decision-making, and uh, promised that they would take a firmer hand in guiding communism into the future. The newspaper did not name Khrushchev by name uh, as the target of these criticisms, but the editors did not need to. Most readers would be aware that all of these comments were directed against the then former first secretary. Besides the loss of face during the Cuban Missile Crisis, the country was also plagued by other problems during Khrushchev's um, reign. Industry was still lagging behind promises and plans and production. Agricultural production remained an issue, and a nationwide famine could only be staved off by massive imports of grain from Canada in 1963. Khrushchev had tied the success of the country closely to his person. He had made great promises and always just sold this, this vision that the bright future for uh, communism um, and for the Soviet Union was always just around the corner. And when that bright future eventually failed to materialize, his star sank due to this, well, albatross of overblown predictions he had kept making as first secretary and hung around his neck. His successor as party leader was a man called Leonid Brezhnev, and crucially, his successor as Soviet prime minister was Alexei Kosygin. Khrushchev had claimed both offices for himself in 1958, and now in a move that was both practical and symbolic, the two highest offices in the country were again held by two separate individuals. Uh, where Soviet politics under Khrushchev had been marked by rapid reforms and a lot of experimentation, the era Brezhnev was one of stagnation, calcification, and slow but steady decline. Brezhnev's government eschewed brash decisions in favor of drawn-out and slow decision-making processes. Also, other state organizations made their way into the Politburo, the highest legislative body of the Soviet Union, when uh, Minister of Defense Andrei Greshko and Head of Intelligence uh, of the Intelligence Service KGB Yuri Andropov joined in 1963. Uh, 1973, I'm sorry. During the first half of the Brezhnev era, Soviet domestic policy was marked by small changes that ultimately amounted to little. These small, slow changes contributed to a fundamental stability of the Soviet system. Um, and then in the second half of Brezhnev's tenure, in turn, uh, uh, the second half was marked by the Soviet leadership refusing to even try enacting any changes at all. And this resulted in the country's economy stagnating even worse than it had before. The Soviet system stifled innovation and Soviet agriculture, you you will detect the theme here, uh, failed to produce enough to constantly feed the nation. And so the country was repeatedly again and again forced to import grain from America during those years, which, um, you know, kind of undercut this whole communism thing, um, or especially like the whole, you know, race of the two systems, communism versus capitalism. The communist country constantly has to import grain from the capitalist country. But the system of agriculture 
in the Soviet Union proved notoriously difficult to reform. And meanwhile, the Soviet defense industry claimed an increasing part of the nation's gross domestic product, which made it increasingly difficult to fund properly other parts of the country. Soviet society during the Brezhnev era was better off, relatively speaking, than the citizenry had ever been before. However, the slow pace of overall improvement, coupled with other factors like the ongoing suppression of dissident thought, resulted in widespread dissatisfaction with the regime and a beginning dissatisfaction with communism in general. People had overall more money, but there was nothing to buy with that money. Education had vastly improved, but there was little to do with that education. And this became especially true as the Soviet system began to turn towards a more conservative form of communism as uh, Brezhnev aged. And um, then the Soviet Union again cracked down on dissidents thought as more than they had before, although never again with the sort of brutality that uh, the 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 country had displayed under Stalin. <coughs> Excuse me. Another problem that became increasingly obvious in the latter half of the 1970s was that Soviet leadership was becoming increasingly gerontocratic, so dominated by old party functionaries who had been born before World War I and who had come of age politically under Stalin. The leadership, including Brezhnev himself, was increasingly just out of touch with most younger Soviet citizens. Uh, remind you of uh, something uh, here of, of in our current political landscape. Uh, but since this leadership had amassed significant amounts of power, both in the country and in the Communist Party, young blood had much difficulty rising to leadership positions. And this became impossible to ignore when Brezhnev himself died in 1982 at age 75. He was succeeded as general secretary. The leadership position had been renamed by Brezhnev in the 60s. Um, so he was succeeded by former KGB chief Yuri Andropov, who was 69 years old when he took office. Andropov then died less than two years later in 1984 to be succeeded by 73-year-old Konstantin Chernenko. Uh, Ch Chernenkov. Uh, and Chernenkov then died after only a year in office. And he was then succeeded by Mikhail Gorbachev, uh, who had been chosen by Andropov to succeed him, but had been passed over by the rest of the Politburo due to, quote-unquote, lacking experience in leadership. When Gorbachev took office, he was the youngest general secretary of uh, the Communist Party in over half a century at age uh, 45. Gorbachev had come up in the ranks of the party as regional leader of the youth organization of the party, the Komsomol. He had then become the party leader of the Stavropol region in, in the North Caucasus before moving up to becoming uh, secretary of the Central Committee of the Communist Party in the late 1970s. Gorbachev inherited a country that was in a deep crisis. Everything was stagnating from the disastrous war in Afghanistan. And I haven't talked about the invasion of Afghanistan yet, uh, but I'll talk about this maybe in some more detail some other time because it's Afghanistan. It's the graveyard of empires. It's fascinating stuff um, to uh, the production of consumer goods that was, you know, stagnating and not really, you know, producing anything for people to buy to the eternal problem of of agriculture. Alcoholism was rampant in the country. In many parts of the Soviet Union that were removed from the urban centers, most people had little other to do than drink uh, in their in their time off. There was just nothing, nothing there. 
Also, the Soviet system, the bureaucracy, and the planned economy kept, again, stifling progress and innovation. Not that the Soviet Union did not have some technological and scientific achievements during this time. While the Americans successfully made it to the moon, um, the Soviets launched the first successful space station, and they also successfully landed several probes on the surface of Venus, which most people these days don't know, uh, and which is one of these little tidbits that just blow my mind every time I hear about it anew. There, there are pictures we have from that mission uh, so we do have photographs from the surface of Venus, and they were made by Soviet probes. And uh, those are just largely forgotten today. The Soviet space program also copied and improved upon the American space shuttle with the Buran project, but the country collapsed before this endeavor had been completed or even flown. And then in the early morning hours of April 26, 1986, uh, Reactor 4 of the Chernobyl power plant in uh, the Ukrainian uh, uh, Soviet Socialist Republic exploded. And the disaster laid bare the various issues of the Soviet system, to Gorbachev, but also to the rest of the country. From the initial denial that anything could have gone wrong in a plant that bore the name of Lenin, to the overly cautious release of information, the slow walking of rescue efforts due to bureaucratic hurdles, Chernobyl and uh, the in inability of the Soviet system to cope with a disaster of this magnitude represented in many ways the beginning of the end of the Soviet Union. Combined with the ongoing catastrophic war in Afghanistan, brewing unrest in several Soviet satellite states, and all the other issues, Gorbachev decided to pursue a more daring reform course. And this introduced uh, the two principles glasnost or openness and transparency and perestroika or reform and rebuilding gorbachev then remodeled the upper echelons of uh, the communist party structure and, and so the system then allowed for the first time in decades for more transparency in government and for a freer press than the Soviet Union had ever allowed before. In foreign policy, Gorbachev uh, withdrew from Brezhnev's doctrine that no country could disengage from the Warsaw Pact, while also allowing some careful experiments with democratic referendums in member states of the Soviet Union. And so as the 1980s drew to a close, several Warsaw Pact, uh, Pact states experienced revolutions which peacefully overthrew their communist regimes, Germany reunited and member states of the Soviet Union itself made noises that they were ready for referendums on independence. And shortly after, the first so Soviet republics began breaking away from the Union. So the worker and peasant state was beginning to dissolve, and Gorbachev allowed this to happen in a peaceful manner without trying to rein in the strays uh, with violence as his predecessors would certainly have done. In, in August of 1991, the communist hardliners then, with their backs to the wall, the system falling apart around them, staged one last decisive battle. They put Gorbachev under house arrest and laid siege to the government in Moscow. And only through careful but decisive negotiation, especially by the president of the newly constituted Russian Soviet Federal Federative Socialist Republic, Yeltsin, did the coup fail. The crisis abated. But the Soviet Union was done. In December of 1991, the last member states uh, of the Soviet Union, Russia and Ukraine, declared the Union dissolved. And this concludes Soviet weeks. However, we are not done with Russia. Next week, we will learn about what happened after, which, unlike what most people will try telling you, was not, in fact, an improvement on what had come before. We will see why Russia never quite came to terms with democracy and capitalism, because as the Russians learned, this, well, indeed was, again, 
hell. So what do you think the U.S. can learn from the Soviet Union's history of having an an economy that is overly dependent on a military-industrial complex? What could the U.S., if they cared to learn from that model, could they learn anything from that model? I mean, certainly, uh, first of all, don't don't dump don't don't dump most of your gross domestic product in into into uh the the into the military and then also uh make sure that that your party structure is not such that it's impossible for younger people to get into leadership positions because that's that's kind of like one of these one of these things that I keep coming back to when I look at currently at the leadership of basically both parties in the US where I'm like every, like all of the leadership people that are so old and like and i and, I, and then i go back to the soviet uh to, to, to like the the this like the the predecessors of gorbachev and i'm like actually the people in the u.s right now they're actually like almost 10 years older than <laughs> than the people in the in the in the death throes of the soviet union i'm like yeah this, this doesn't give me a lot of confidence here it's uh yeah plus you know like all these forever wars i mean the Granted, like the Americans had a, a fairly big hand in uh, keeping the Soviet Union in the in this forever war in Afghanistan. I mean, the war basically lasted from uh, 1979 to 1989, um, which compared to how long the U.S. stayed in Afghanistan is, again, uh, yeah, not that long, actually. <laughs> no. Um, it's, like, so... it's like the United States is doing everything the Soviet Union did and worse, even when it comes to like Walmart and having a centralized economic yeah. model and yeah. plan. So you think the centralized economy is horrible, and then what does you know capitalism naturally do? It tries to become, it tries to monopolize itself. So it's the mm -hmm. exact same process. It's like we're repeating all of the mistakes that the Soviet Union made, all the mistakes that back then people here in the United States were pointing out were mistakes may not have been because it's just like we just mimicked them immediately. Yeah, yeah. And that's and that is why this is the past inside the present. <laughs> that's right. All right, Sebastian. Until next week. Great to hear your Alrighty. voice. Too bad that you and uh, Will couldn't hook up in uh, GR in the most. Don't beautiful... make it sound so dirty. I know. <laughs> it also oh, sounds like yeah. it sounds like either that or a drug deal. It sounds like mm, let's go. Let's mm. go meet. I'll, my trunk will be open. You'll see what I mean. <laughs> All right, Sebastian. Great Alrighty. to hear your voice. Take care. Take care. Bye. See, we told you. This is Hell. Will, what is the next interview that we are playing during This is Hell, the Lost Pandemic Tapes, Volume 2, a hand-picked collection of interviews never aired before on our home station, Chicago Sound Experiment, WNUR 89.3 FM. Our next interview will be Helen Yaff, author of We Are Cuba, How Revolutionary People Have Survived in a Post-Soviet World. And she'll be talking about how this is in the first week of April of 2020. And so she's also going to talk about how Cuba was reacting to COVID uh, with their healthcare system and trying to provide a vaccine for the people of Cuba. That was one of my favorite interviews. Oh, thank you very much. And then uh, who's on Wednesday? And then on Wednesday, we have Malcolm Harris, who will discuss his book, Shit is Fucked Up and Bullshit, History Since the End of History. And we'll have to edit out that entire yeah. title for WNUR. When I did the show on WNUR, I said, S is effed up and BS, which sounds like a horrible name for a book. And so I just felt really bad about saying it. Also coming up later this week, we will have This Week in Rotten History. We will reveal what is happening on 
this week's Patreon podcast, which streams live on Thursday at patreon.com slash thisishell. We'll announce the winner of this week's question from hell. The winner gets their choice of This Is Hell merchandise absolutely free. You can see all of our stuff right now by going to This Is Hell and clicking on support. And we will be revealing next week's guests as well. We have one confirmed. We're working on a couple of others as we speak. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast, live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Will Eppen for producing. Thanks to Sebastian Vupper for the past inside the present. Most of all, thank you for listening. The future ain't what it used to be. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. 